Hey, Tamir. How Hi are there. you doing today? I'm pretty blah, but for very different reasons than the last time we were talking, just dealing with some some personal stuff that's got me feeling a bit uh, weighed down today. So I might be a bit flat, but I'm really um, energized for this conversation. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm just making my way through a busy day and I'm also energized for this conversation, but also, you know, whatever we need to do to, to kind of care for you during this time, just let me know. And we'll do it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Hello to everyone that's listening. We are going to be talking about taking up space as white people in racial justice work. And um, we've got a pretty rich conversation planned for you. This is actually going to be a two-part episode. So please look out for our next episode on a different aspect of this very same topic. And you know, the reason we're we're diving into this is because in recent years, movement leaders have called on white people and white-led organizations to move back and make way for leaders of color. Um, and we think that's an important call. So we want to dive into it. Yeah, it's an important call. And for many white folks like us, a disorienting one requires us to confront the ways in which we've taken up space. And then imagine, you know, how are we different or how can we be different in ways that make room for others? And what does it mean for us? What does it mean about us? And what does it mean for us? And how can we make sure we're honoring the leadership of others, but also not shrinking ourselves to an extent that's unhealthy or self-diminishing? Yes, 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 yes. Oh. We're going to get into that nuance. We're going to get into other questions like what's behind the shift? Uh, what does it mean for white people committed to advancing racial justice to actually move back and make that space? Mm -hmm. What does it look like for white people for us to take appropriate amounts of space in mm -hmm. multiracial work? How can we honor the leadership of people of color without doing exactly what you just said, overcorrecting, mm -hmm. shrinking ourselves in ways that are unhealthy? Yep. So these are going to be our focuses for uh, this episode and the next one. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, Tamir, if you can talk a little bit about what we mean when we say taking up space. Yeah. So when we talk about taking up space, we mean taking visibility, power, or resources um, in ways that detract from the leadership of people of color and justice movements. And those things are not pies. It's not a zero-sum game. But there are ways that we, as white people with lots of privilege, and as people who, like a lot of other white people, prefer to listen to because of internalized white supremacy, um, can crowd out other folks um, who are directly affected by these issues. That's something we want to be mindful of. And... Um, the things that we can do can include things like taking airtime. So like taking an interview from a local paper that somebody else should do or taking credit for an outcome in a struggle that we're in when we weren't the ones who organized for 20 years to bring it to uh, people's attention and make something happen. Um, it can mean taking exposure. So, you know, you, you know, build a large Instagram following about a particular issue speaking over people of color who have, again, been working on that issue for a really long time. It can mean formal leadership positions where you get hired as a, a senior staff member or a CEO of an organization um, that really needs to be led by someone else. And that's a whole thing we could unpack mm. in and of itself. Um, mm. But, you know, especially though, when 
we're not honest with ourselves about what our equity training is and whether we really have the level of analysis or rigor in our practice or the relationships and sort of community in our justice work to lead in certain ways and not being honest with ourselves about that. Um, jump in any time here because I could go on. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're hitting on, yeah, a lot of the ways that white people take up space, <laughs> visibility, power resources in ways that really detract from folks of color. One of the things too that we haven't mentioned yet is even just taking up physical space with our bodies, mm -hmm. considering do we physically belong in a given space like a caucus group that's for people of color or an event that's geared towards people of color. So like, mm. yeah, there are all of these um, both tangential and very tangible ways in which white people can take mm -hmm. up space and that actually aren't appropriate for yeah. whatever the purpose of the gathering is. Yep. Yep. Definitely seen people sending very like hurt emails about like, why don't I get to be a part of this caucus group? Mm. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that's why. That's why you don't get to be part of the caucus group. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are there are other ways, and we'll get more into this later in the episode. But like, you know, we have power to do things like set goals or demands in movement work when white folks or white led organizations are at the forefront, and that can shape narratives in ways that erase the experiences of people of color and shift demands away from the things that are most immediately relevant um, or vital to survival. Um, mm. And that's really uh, potentially problematic. It can mean money, right? Because again, white-led organizations often will get more money to do the same work, even if they do it less well. And mm -hmm. sometimes the money is to like bring them up to speed. That's a huge issue in philanthropy, a conflict between white-led organizations and like what they call like constituency-led organizations or organizations led by a group that serve a group that are already doing that work, but getting less money and less recognition, um, drawing volunteers away, the list goes on. But really it's just like anything that it takes to sustain a movement, like white people can sort of draw in away from others it doesn't have to be that way but often because of our society's like internalized white supremacy that's the way it shapes out yep so let's talk about why this issue is coming up now um we know that historically many movements for justice have relied on multiracial coalitions yep. the civil rights movement labor reproductive justice the list goes on but often we also know that in those movements, white people have put themselves at the front for it. We put ourselves at the forefront. Um, we, like you just said, define the goals, define the strategies for those movements in ways that focus on our experiences and our priorities while simultaneously sucking up attention and financial resources that could otherwise go to groups led by people of color. And white movement leaders, you know, folks who are leading different movements can also silence positions that challenge their interests or just make them uncomfortable. Yeah. And you know, one example we have is looking at the LGBTQ movements of you know recent years past. Um, for years, white-led gay rights organizations made marriage equality their central issue, their thing that we are putting a stake down around. And obviously, marriage equality is important. It's in danger now with the Supreme Court. Um, so not to say that it's not important, but at the time and even now, queer activists of color have been saying all along that the focus on marriage equality doesn't address many significant issues their communities are facing, including racism within LGBTQ communities. But white-led organizations and white movement leaders um, have basically disregarded that. Yeah. And that literally has life and death consequences. You know, we're talking to and, you know, a, a trigger warning for what I'm about to say around violence, 
um, because we're talking about issues like the murder and disappearance of queer and trans women of color and queer trans black women specifically in many cases. Um, Homelessness for LGBTQ youth with especially devastating outcomes for black and other communities of color uh, in the LGBTQ community. Um, So literally life and death and just sort of deemed somehow unnecessary for a win that really reflects the issues of not just white people, but often white, wealthy or middle class people with multiple layers of privilege. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Which is why we want to do an episode like this in our next one. Yeah. Um, we want to look at how white people are taking up space now and more specifically, where are we getting it wrong? Yep. Yep. Um, And so what we're going to focus on in today's episode is ways in which we take up too much space. And in episode two, uh, which I guess will be episode eight, we will talk about ways in which we shrink and make ourselves unavailable or less helpful uh, in in movement struggle. Um, So we do all sorts of stuff. um, And, you know, a lot of this behavior, some of it is like misguided allyship behavior. Some of it is not allyship. Some of it is actually undermining. Um, actively undermining. Um, These are things like forcefully inviting ourselves to meetings we're not asked to be at because we think we have something to contribute. Um, Going out of our way to come down on other white people in order to signal that we're not one of the bad white people. Uh, We call that credentialing. Uh, I don't know if, did you make that up, credentialing? Like, did you come up with that? No, no. I know I've heard Robin D'Angelo use it. I know I've heard a couple of people use it. I don't know who it's from. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, you know, there are things like this is an example of like what's really not allyship behavior, but like micro committing microaggressions when we show up as allies. So like, you know, somebody is writing a paper or a memo to make a case for something in the organization and like we're focusing on their grammar instead of the message or the strategy. And it's like you're you're just poking the balloon. Like there's no reason to do that, um, at least without consent. Right. Um, talking a lot. Um you know, not realizing how much airtime we're taking up, talking about things that aren't our place to talk about, mansplaining, interrupting, while actually people assuming we know better, um, or even sometimes like defending white people or systems, right? If there's like a, a characterization we feel um, is particularly sweeping or harsh towards white people we know. Um, I don't know who coined the term white solidarity, um, but, you know, we may sometimes subconsciously like just default to like, see the benefit like the good in the other person right give them the benefit of the doubt like well what if it's this like maybe that can happen and there's a lot of nuance there that we should probably get into maybe we should do an episode on white solidarity um Mm. probably a good thing to add to the list um but what it really ends up doing is invalidating the experiences and the perspectives of people of color in ways that are not they're not they're not dialectic right they're they're uh uh reassertion of white superiority um what else would you add to that list allison I mean, sometimes we want to or feel entitled to give our input without actually doing the work of following through on the commitment. Mm -hmm. So wanting to show up and be a loud voice of, well, we should do things this way, or, you know, we got to do this or that, um, but not actually doing the work, just showing up to kind of criticize or give our quote unquote input. Mm -hmm. Um, I know we've seen instances where white people have shown up to racial justice actions or protests and been really loud, disruptive, or even violent in ways put people of color in harm. Um, I know one that we had talked about were 
Um, when the uprising at Standing Rock happened a few years back, there were complaints about white people showing up and playing guitar um, when the indigenous folks there said, hey, this is a sacred space. This is not what we do in this space. Um, and you shared an episode from closer to your neck of the woods. I don't know if you wanted to touch on that. Yeah. So um, in Buffalo, there was a, a, a person of color who was killed by police and some of the black organizers, Buffalo is, I think maybe there's a zip code in Buffalo. It's like the blackest zip code in the United States, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and organizers are saying that like there were white folks who were showing up wanting to throw rocks and like escalate in ways without regard for the potential danger that that would put um, the black folks and other people of color at the, at the action into. Um, so yeah. really irresponsible and like a sort of specious sense of solidarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, hearing those last couple ones, that's very easy for me to say, well, I haven't done that. I haven't, you know, shown up to a protest and been violent. Um, mm -hmm. But looking at the rest of the list, the other things that we covered, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know I've done some of these things. I know yeah. <laughs> what the white people that I work with and yeah. love and are good people and mm -hmm. want to, you know, want to be good allies. We've shown up in ways that really are harmful um, yeah. in our away from the leadership of people of color so can i can i tell you a, a story of when i threw a figurative rock sure yeah so i haven't thought about this in a long time so um i was at uh, a philanthropic intermediary organization for many years and we were just starting our formal racial equity process and we had a consultant come a consultant who i really like admire and respect and let a full day retreat for us and over the course of the retreat I got more and more frustrated because I thought I felt like we were talking in really vague terms that were like meant to mean everything and nothing. I realized now that people were just trying to understand this from their perspective, but it felt mm -hmm. like we weren't like we were doing work, but it didn't feel that way at the time because it felt like we weren't getting anywhere. And wow. at the end of the meeting, we were each asked to share like what our thoughts were at the end of the meeting. And I'm like, I'm really committed to seeing this happen. And if we don't make real progress, I'm going to leave. Oh, ultimate! You threw the ultimatum rock. It wasn't like it was literally like I can't handle it if we don't actually do this. And what ended up happening was like all of my colleagues of color at my level in the organization, like on the train ride home, who were going in the same direction on the train, like most of that train ride was them. Like we we're just like talking about that. It's like you really didn't need to drop the mic like that. Like you know, kind of like what did you think you were going to accomplish? Mm. And I wasn't thinking about any of that at the time. I was totally dysregulated. Mm. Um, mm. And it was just like the idea of sitting through more sort of like vague gestures was um, like something I couldn't physically tolerate. And I didn't have the self-control to like hold that. And I mm. didn't have the skills at the time to approach that with curiosity and ask like, what's happening here? And how are people actually really trying? Which is what I would do now. Mm. Um, and so that ended up, I think that had consequences for my relationships with my peers. And also like, I remember in my annual review that year, having my boss say that I had displayed some behaviors that were not leadership behaviors. So it actually eroded my standing with people to advance equity from a place of solidarity. Um, because I felt the need to like, kind of like, I couldn't not let my feelings leak out in an unhealthy way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And that's just making me reflect on ways that I've shown up similarly and like, 
where I've made the focus about myself and not about the group and the process mm-hmm. of the group, you know, and like, maybe you had a point, maybe there were, you know, there were ways that the yeah. language could have been clearer, but like how you address that didn't seem to help a whole lot and seemed to upset your colleagues of color. And I know I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I made it about me instead of about the work. I think that's really kind of the bottom line and like did in a way that wasn't an invitation and it wasn't like, it it wasn't an actionable challenge. Yeah. So it's just like, it was super ineffective and like literally self-centering. And again, Mm -hmm. like we can separate intention from impact, but there wasn't intention. Like I was not, I was not in charge of myself in that moment. Like I, I made, I, I made the choice, but I didn't make it from a place of conscious, like of consciousness. Yeah. So we're getting real. We've done things. We know many, if not most, if not all of our white listeners have done these things. Why do we do these things? And, Uh, you know, in talking about it, Tamir and I, you know, understand that this is a place where we really have to confront the privilege that allows us to show up in these ways. mm -hmm. And I think some of it is getting at what you and I were both just saying about some self-importance, some Mm -hmm. white symbolism at play, this idea that my input is needed or everything's going to be terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, Tamir, you and I are both process people. You and I are both people who care a lot about the process by which things get done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that can be extra hard for us to, to relinquish yeah. control over processes and mm-hmm. to consider that other people might have different ways of getting things done that are just as valid as our own. Yeah. And it also has a really ugly implication that a lot of us don't like to acknowledge that is there, which is if we think that the process will fall apart if we're not there, what does that say about what we believe our colleagues of color are capable of? Right. Mm. And we might say, well, they're up against a really difficult system and I want to help this happen. Is that really what's going on? Mm. Or are mm. we are we believing that we are actually needed because this group needs a strong leader or something like that? And mm. it's just it has really insulting implications for our colleagues of color. I think there are times too, where we as white people genuinely want to help. We want to be of service. We want to, you know, support the efforts of people of color, but we're not paying attention to dynamics of power and privilege. We're just not seeing, but that, you know, the way we're offering critique, how much airtime we're using the, you know, just all of the things that we listed earlier are actually contributing to harming people of color and mm-hmm. upholding oppressive dynamics where we're in charge. We get all the resources. We get to decide the mm-hmm. name of the game while people of color have to follow our leadership or kind of, um, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but like make themselves small mm-hmm. to the ways in which we're taking up space or to contort to that. Yeah. And there's, there's so much that's been written said and and demonstrated about how, centering white people and attending to the needs of white people and holding space for us to be dysregulated, right? Or act out is a survival strategy. It is a way of, of getting through a white dominant world. Um, and it's the last thing we want to play into. And it takes training and reflection to see the ways in which we actually play into that and have been the like calling beneficiary seems almost wrong. It's like a blanket that both comforts and corrupts. Mm, mm, you know, mm, it's, it's, it's toxic for us too, because it means we're not actually being responsible for our own behavior and who wants to not be responsible for our own behavior. Like maybe sometimes like when I'm on vacation, but like, (laughs) you know, this ain't Vegas. (laughs) 
Well, and that gets into kind of another reason we know that this happens is as white people, we're often not used to having to moderate how much we talk or what we say. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about how, you know, this can interact with our own neurodivergence, right? Social anxiety, anxiety in general, ADHD, you know, there there, there are valid reasons Mm -hmm. why may have a hard time moderating how much we talk or what we say, but Mm we are 100% still responsible for the impact. We 100% have to work on finding ways to self-regulate if it is coming from a place of neurodivergence and definitely if it's not. Yeah. And there's so many layers to this and we will have an episode at some point about neurodivergence. As someone who identifies as neurodivergent, I really can't wait to like unpack that with you. in a world where we're really intersectional in the way that we care for each other, there is space to hold the impacts and consequences of neurodivergence and to like make space for people to be who they are. It's easy sometimes to feel as a white, uh, if speaking from my own experience, it's, it, there have been times when I felt like people maybe, it almost feels like people don't care about the ways that I'm suffering because of those conditions, whether it's neurodivergence or just straight up trauma response that's coming up. It's also not other people's responsibility to hold that without consent, mm-hmm. without conscious agreement, right? Um, and so it's it's also not that people don't care. It's that like the impact of that in the context of a deeply oppressive and violent system mm-hmm. is also a lot to hold. And it is a lot to ask and way too much to expect and feel entitled to. That's the issue, right? It's an entitlement. Like, of course, people are going to hold that for me because they always have without mm-hmm. thinking, well, people have always held this for me because there's no choice, because yeah. the alternative is is dangerous. Yep, 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 yep. So we've talked about the behaviors of taking up too much space mm-hmm. in multiracial spaces, um, kind of subverting the leadership of people of color. We've talked about where these behaviors come from, like why we do this. Mm-hmm. How do we start to shift these patterns? Mm. Um, can I name one more thing about why we do this? Sure. Yeah. So again, next time we're going to talk about when we shrink too much. Um, but sometimes there's like an adverse reaction when we're challenged. Like we talked in the run up to this about like how sometimes being told to check your privilege feels more like a shutdown than like an actionable challenge. I've heard, we heard recently, right. Some white folks saying, I feel like I have to make myself small so that other people feel comfortable. and like. That can be a really like, that can really be centering of whiteness. Mm. It's really hard to unpack which parts of us are really us ex- expressing our authentic self, which things are artifacts of our privilege that we've just never had to pay attention to before because there's no consequences if we don't, and which are like parts of us that are like kind of driving when they shouldn't be. They're not our wise self. They're not, you know, like the person we would hire to be the CEO of our brain. It's like a part. <laughs> That is that is crying out for attention in the wrong space. Yes. Um, and that kind of discernment, maybe this is a good way of getting into shifting the pattern. Part of that is exercising some discernment and being conscious of how do I want to show up in this space? What's mm-hmm. being asked of me here? What is mm-hmm. the call? And then what do I have to offer? And how does that align with what's needed or what's being asked for? Mm-hmm. So we talk a lot about swapping fragility for rigor. So getting out of like, well, people don't want me to talk, so I'm just going to be quiet. Mm-hmm. which is depriving the group of a resource that is undermining leadership, right? Mm-hmm. Unless what we're really being asked to do is listen, which is mm-hmm. solidarity. That's different. 
you know? Yeah. So like really doing that examination of like, what is being asked of me in this space? How can I contribute? What is welcome and appreciated? And mm. you'd be amazed how much space that creates for us to show up at a, as our whole selves when people feel honored and like they get to they get to choose. They're not feeling pressured to just accommodate you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, even just recognizing how most spaces we're in are set up to cater to us and mm-hmm. overvalue our participation and ideas and thoughts and feedback, like just recognizing that I think can be a huge, a huge first step and a huge avenue to showing up differently in a space. Mm-hmm. Noticing who's talking, whose input gets weight in the meetings that you're in. Is it white people? Is it people of color? Is it men or women? Like look at noticing, you know, the identities of the folks that are contributing more and how those are valued can be some really helpful information to give you around how to show up differently, or even how you might want to intervene in a group if white people are dominating conversations, you know, mm-hmm. there definitely are ways to kind of appropriately um, point out that, you know, we're not hearing from folks of color in the room, we're not hearing from women in the room, mm-hmm. uh, in ways that aren't just saying, check your privilege and kind of shutting down yeah. <laughs> reflection. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to try this on. Tell me if it if it feels like a good idea to you. I have this idea for an exercise that maybe folks can try if they're not sure what's happening with the airtime in their space. Mm. Um, go to a meeting where you don't actually have to talk and just watch. Mm. And mm. pay as much attention as you can without being awkward or intrusive <laughs> to who's talking and really, when when people of color in the room are talking, give them your full attention and mm. like really sit with what they're saying. And then notice what you hear or open up to that maybe you don't otherwise notice. Mm. Um, and then how white people in the room respond when people of color talk. Mm. Just like try that, try that as an observation. And if you do it, let us know how it goes. Mm. I love that. I think that's a great experiment. I definitely would encourage our white listeners to do that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I know that I, I know some white folks that I interact with who are in multiracial spaces often adopt kind of a rule for themselves or mm-hmm. like a, a reminder to take three natural breaths in between speakers before speaking mm-hmm. to allow time for other voices to show up um, and to allow time to just reflect on, do I actually need to speak up right now? Is what I'm saying actually going to contribute in a way that's helpful in a way that, you know, is going to move the work forward. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I think that's another, that's another strategy I've seen used. Yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, we referenced neurodivergence earlier, you shared about your experience and, you know, if you know that your brain works differently um, Mm -hmm. than neurotypical brains, you know, we encourage you to talk with a therapist or a friend about how this comes up, how in your work or your movement life. And like Tamir said, we're going to talk more about this in a future episode about allyship and neurodivergence, but just Mm -hmm. recognizing that you may need a different set of strategies or Mm -hmm. yeah, or need to have different conversations in advance with the folks that you're in movement work with or in work with in general. Yep. I've gotten into a practice with people now of what I'm building a relationship where it feels appropriate to say neurodivergence is part of my identity. It affects how I show up. You may see some things happening. I'm doing work to change that. And if Mm. these things come up, I want to invite you if you feel, if it feels safe and you're willing to do it to, you know, like 
or at least have a conversation about how we want to respond in those moments so we can have agreement on what the process is. And people typically appreciate that. Mm, I love that. I know that another shift is really, you're getting at some more of the internal work that we have to do. And specifically, mm-hmm. we've got work to do around our own implicit biases, yep. which we referenced earlier, you know, noticing that if we as white people feel the need to insert ourselves into processes that are led by people of color, what needs are we satisfying by doing that? Like, mm-hmm. what's the narrative we're acting on? You know, going back to that narrative of if I don't participate, or if I don't give my input, this whole thing's going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And remembering back to what Tamir pointed out, to ask ourselves, what does that imply about the people of color we're working with? Mm-hmm. So really just looking at, you know, where is where's saviorism, white saviorism coming up in myself? Where am I overvaluing my input and my mm-hmm. participation? And what does that actually mean uh, about how I'm viewing people of color in this scenario? Yep. Yep. And then do I really subscribe to that, right? Like, do I really yeah. believe that this space will fall apart if I'm not there? And like, what does that say about me? Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. We, yes. Let's be clear. Like when we talk about needs, often we're talking about ego needs. And I don't mean like I'm amazing. The world should worship me. Although in some cases that may be happening, it's mm-hmm. like I derive my sense of worth as a person from my ability to influence process, my ability to move difficult work forward, the way I show up, whatever it is. And like, it is not the job of the spaces we're in to affirm our ego, not in that way. Mm. Right. Like check your privilege feels really imprecise. When we talk about like what ego needs am I satisfying in this behavior? What is this implying about what I believe about the people around me? It's like, I, 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 maybe we should do an episode about this, like get specific about what checking our privilege means, but like, these are great answerable questions that can affect our behavior in positive ways. They're way more rigorous questions than however you would answer. Well, check your question. Check your privilege isn't even a question. You know, no, like, it's not. You know, but 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 yeah. I'm gonna. Re- if someone tells me to check my privilege. I'm often mm-hmm. gonna respond in a very fragile, unrigorous way, right? But the mm-hmm. question we've been offering around this, I think, are much more rigorous and can be answered without, you know, a spiraling into well, we're just terrible white people. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 And I I think it's worth saying again too that like there's a lot we, there's a lot we can do before we enter spaces to set ourselves up. But I want to say again, not all spaces are for us and that's okay. Right. And it's like, there are some really beautiful spaces for communities of color, for specific groups within the the umbrella of communities of color that are doing amazing healing work that would be transformative for me personally, but my being there would screw it up. So Mm -hmm. like, I'll find it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Right. There are so many resources out there and more emerging every day. And, you know, if if spaces are asking us to show up a certain way, even if we disagree with it, like you get to choose whether you go or not, right? Mm -hmm. But be rigorous with yourself. Is is that about my ego? Or is Mm -hmm. that like, I feel like on principle, this is wrong. That can be really hard. And if you're not sure, check in with someone you trust, right? Mm -hmm. And bring some rigor to it. And then like, trust yourself. If the decision is wrong, go to the next one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, thank you for naming all of that. Yeah. And I know we've we've talked about it, but worth reiterating again, when we do enter spaces that are led by people of color or multiracial spaces, it's so important for us to enter with curiosity and positive regard. Um, and Tamir and I talk a lot about this as coaches, we are committed to interacting with our clients in a way mm-hmm. 
that holds them in complete positive regard. Yes. No matter what they say, what they do, the choices they're making outside of our coaching sessions, like we believe that they are worthy and whole and actually know the most about themselves and their situation and are Mm -hmm. best equipped to come up with, you know, actions to take moving forward. Mm -hmm. Um, what if we held the spaces we went into with that same positive regard, you know, mm-hmm. looking at it, asking questions like you asked earlier, Tamir, what's really working about this space? What's been accomplished here? You know, what do I admire about the people and the leadership of this space? Starting to build some empathy with, with mm-hmm. folks like, you know, if I'm feeling frustrated as a participant, where are the organi- organizers or leaders of this space feeling frustrated yep. Like, how can I kind of support them in in addressing the frustration too? Um, yeah, when we still show up with this stance of humility, when we're honoring leaders of color, uh, folks notice. And then, you know, it opens the door to build relationships, to be more mm-hmm. useful in your contributions. Um, and over time, your unique talents and perspectives are going to find ways to express themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, entering with curiosity and positive regard is, I think, the first the first step in that process. Yeah. And it's good for your nervous system too. I get physically Mm -hmm. activated when I feel like a space is dysfunctional. And if instead Mm -hmm. I look at what's working really well, what's powerful, my whole body set shifts, like mindset, body set. I I don't know if that's a thing, but Mm -hmm. it shifts and it just makes me so much more useful and, and, um, just healthier. So I know we have to go, can we talk quickly about moving money and then do action commitments next time? Sure. Yeah. So this is great because there were two organizations we really wanted to move money to. And now that we have two parts in the episode, we can do both. Um, So as always, moving money, this is an invitation, right? Part of being an ally and acting in solidarity is moving money. You can think of it as reparations or whatever. Um, And we want to lift up the work of the Marsha P. Johnson Institute today. Um, Their ED is someone who I really admire and respect, L. Moxley. And Marsha P. Johnson was a prominent participant in Stonewall, a longtime LGBTQ justice advocate based in New York. And the Institute protects and defends the human rights of Black transgender people by organizing, advocating, creating intentional healing community, developing transformative leadership, and building collective power. And because we were talking about the LGBTQ movement earlier and the ways that it has erased the leadership of people of color, uh, we especially Mm -hmm. wanted to call out organizations working directly with and led by uh, queer and trans people of color. Um, so we'll share links on our socials, Marsha P. Johnston Institute. Um, any amount is good. And when you give it should hurt a little. Mm-hmm. That's it for now for part one of this episode on taking up space as a white per- person in movement work and multiracial racial justice work. Um, and we'll be back next time talking about the inverse of taking up too much space when we take up too little space when we shrink ourselves and how that actually does a disservice to the spaces we're in and the people we're working with. Segway. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Tamir. At the buzzer.